Well, this week I wasn't quite sure what I was going to speak on, and then I got onto social media, and I saw a comment made by a gentleman. Uh, saw a comment made by a, a another minister within the Churches of Christ. He was talking about uh, adding to his personal library, and. Uh, I think most of us know that there's no doubt that those of us as Christians need to spend a lot of time in the Word of God and, and learning to rightly divide the truth. And as I heard him make that comment talking about adding to his, his personal library, he didn't quite phrase it that way, but uh, he was talking about his, his library of books that he had. I began to think about those books. I don't know how many, how many of you have been down into the office. I have a lot of books. Uh, and I used to, my wife will tell you, I used to go to the library every day after class when I was in school, and I would come home with books and books and books. And I began to think about all those books. And I have a lot of books, and some of those have been invaluable over the years. Uh, and at the same point, if you go down to my office, you will find books that are very, they're not worth anything. Most of them actually, if, if you pick it up and it's uh, a book with air in it, it will say air written on the side. That way somebody possibly wouldn't go down there and borrow a book and uh, look at air. But my point was, as I began to think about my personal library, some of those books have been wonderful. And then I thought, well, many of those books have really been nothing more than just air and junk and would actually do more to lead someone astray than they would to lead them to the truth. Uh, and so with that being said, let me say you really need to know the author of any book that you read. You really ought to know their religious background. And there's a lot of things you really ought to think about as you begin to think about books. Now, for those of us as Christians, we get this idea that certainly Bible study is necessary. It is great. But do you actually even really know what Bible study means? That's something I think a lot of people really do not understand. Bible study is more than just reading books. It's more than just reading the Bible. And you may hear me say that and say, how is Bible study more than just reading the Bible? Let me say this, there are a lot of people who read their Bibles every day. They have the slightest idea what it is they're reading, and they've never obeyed the gospel. And so if you were to ask me if they're indulging in Bible study, I would say if, in fact, they are, it's, it's not efficient. So Bible study is a whole lot more than reading books. It's more than just reading the Bible. True Bible study would require someone to give diligent thought to the subject at hand, to the context of what it is that they're reading, and to give thought to how what it is that they're reading in the passages actually either correspond or impact other passages that they read. That's, that's Bible study. Bible study is a whole lot more than showing up on Sundays or Wednesdays and sitting through a class. Uh, people do that all the time. You know what that is? That's really just being present. Bible study means that as we're, we're talking about something, uh, I'm actually considering the material at hand spending time maybe throughout the week preparing in advance, or, or if I don't prepare in advance because maybe I don't know the topic, during the study I'm actually jotting down things that pique my interest, questions that I may have about it. I want to confirm what it is that the actual person said to me to find out if that's accurate. That would be, would be an example of Bible study. Bible study is a whole lot more than just listening to sermons. Uh, people do that all the time, and some don't ever verify anything that they've ever actually heard. You need to go back and contemplate the lesson that was given. Again, you need to write down questions that may have come to mind as you were listening to it. You need to write down Bible verses and go back and check. Were these actually used in context or was somebody cherry-picking to teach something that's, that's not actually taught in the Bible? Are you going back and you verifying again the speaker's remarks? That is 
Bible study. Now, the need for the Christian to study is really without question or debate. John actually looked at two different sections of Scripture. The Jews understood this too. I'm going to go on over to Hosea 4.6. Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Let me pause for a minute. How many of you are aware of people who claim to be Christians who, who really have no knowledge whatsoever of the Scriptures? And guys, I'll have to admit at one point I fell into that category. Uh, I thought I was a Christian and I, I couldn't even answer basic Bible questions. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. That thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Now, certainly we do need to study. And many of us have had conversations about studying, the importance of study. And then we've even began to talk about how is it that we can grow in our knowledge for studying. And there are a lot of different helps. Many of you probably have used some of these. We have things like reference Bibles. Matter of fact, you can go out and buy, buy a Bible written by a specific author, and you can get his whole added understanding for Scripture. Uh, when I first started studying the Bible, I had a Schofield Bible, premillennial doctrine through and through. I didn't know. But you can buy reference Bibles. You can buy dictionaries. You can buy concordances. You can buy commentaries. And many people have these things, and many people choose these things without ever giving thought to who it was that wrote it or to even their ability or scholarship behind it. Now again, let me say this. There are atheists who are literally teaching college courses in religion and writing books on theology. How many of you guys want to read a book or take a class by an atheist who doesn't even believe in God, but he's teaching about God? And so again, there's great concern as we talk about these Bible helps. And let me say this before I really go any further, because you may get the wrong idea. I'm not opposed to study aids. Matter of fact, I use them quite often. Not a lot of them, but I do use a few of them on a regular basis. If you'll go down to my office, you'll find a lot of books. Uh, and occasionally, I'll get stumped on something, and I will go get one of those books. But if you were to ask me how many of those books I've actually pulled out of my office this year, I would probably say it's less than three or five. And so my view has changed a little bit on my personal library. Uh, when it comes to commentaries or books on specific topics, again, let me say this. You need to have great caution as to the author of what it is you're reading, to their religious background, and so forth. And another issue is this. I don't know if you guys have realized this, but when you go buy books, and again, I have lots of them. Have you guys realized that some of these are very expensive? Very expensive books. Now, let me say this. You can be a faithful Christian with a $12 King James Version. That's what I paid for that one. Or you can spend 8 or $9 on a modern little version, uh, and you can, you can be a perfectly faithful Christian. And so today I am going to talk a little bit about our personal library, but I'm going to talk about our personal library before we ever go out and buy a dictionary or a concordance or some book written by man. We're going to talk about our personal library, not the personal library in our house. Let's begin to look at our personal library. Let's start off talking about an honest and good heart. Does it really even matter how many books you got if you don't have an honest and good heart? Uh, the heart that we're talking about here is really going over to Luke chapter 8. This is like the person that Jesus mentions in the parable of the sower uh, when he mentioned the good soil. Follow along Luke starting in verse 8. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. 
Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Now you may, you may hear that and you say, well, how do I really know if I'm somebody who is one with a, an honest and a good heart? Well, he, he sums it up here for us. A person with an honest and a good heart is a person that when they learn the word, they adhere to the word. Again, I think the reason that a lot of people have never obeyed the gospel is because a lot of people simply have never really heard the gospel. They really just don't know. And we'll touch on that in, in a little bit. But we have to make a distinction here as we talk about the honest and good heart because the worldly standard for an honest and good heart is based on the ever-changing standard of whoever it is you're talking to at the time and their personal assessment of what it is that is good or what it is that is bad. And oftentimes, it's without uh, any concern whatsoever for either keeping or rejecting the will of God. What I mean is, is their assessment for good and honest is what they think good and honest is. For the Christian to really have any hope of Bible study to be effective, they've got to be first honest. They have to desire to actually learn and obey His Word. And without that, as I thought about it, it doesn't matter how many books I have in my house or how many books I have in my personal library, because if I don't have an honest and good heart, there's no book out there that's going to help me to be righteous, is there? Let's talk about another thing that needs to be in our personal library. And that follows up with what we just looked at, and that's the desire to do God's will. It's interesting that Jesus, in multiple locations, tied knowledge to a willingness to do God's will. I'm going to go on over to John 7, 17. John 7, 17. And again, I think this goes back to really the, the problem of the world around us. He says, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. All right, Jesus here is showing us that desire and knowledge uh, is needed for one to do God's will. Now, again, you may ask yourself, and how many of you know someone who's never obeyed the gospel? Why have they not obeyed the gospel? I think it sums up into really two points of what Jesus says here. Either one, they do not have the desire, or two, they do not have the knowledge. Now, it's possible they could fall into both of those categories. But certainly, they don't either have desire or they don't have knowledge. They don't know how. Uh, we were often told in school, and I believe this is correct, an honest man taught right will do right. And many of us know people who've just never been taught right. But we have to start by having a desire to, to do God's will. No amount of books in my library are going to make any difference if I don't have that desire to start off with. Now, we learn by doing. Some people do. Go on over to John 8, 31 and 32. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in my word... Then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Some people will do. They'll learn, they'll hear, and they will do. And then there are some around us they will, I guess, not do. Let's go on over to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And guys, sometimes this is actually people who are Christians. And maybe they were faithful at one time and growing, and now they're no longer doing. Hebrews 5, starting in verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, 
ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Let me pause for a second. Right? They're not where they ought to be. And there could be a number of reasons for that, but the point is simply this, they're not. Verse 13, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of, right, of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. A person has to have a desire to know and do the will of God. Because if he doesn't, it doesn't matter how many books, again, you've got in your house. Uh, how expensive those books were, it's not going to do anything to add to your righteousness. Let's talk about regular study time. Again, this does go back really to an earlier point as we talked about what really is Bible study. We know that study time or understanding God's law has always been emphasized. It was certainly for those under the Old Testament. It is today. Uh, and, and when I say this, let me I'm not talking about religious pop psychology books or the new fad of the day on the top 20 list down at the Christian bookstore. That's not what I'm talking about. When we talk about regular study time, we're talking about actual Bible study time. Listen to Psalms 1-2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. You're not going to find that for the most part in a lot of books written by men, right? But you will find it in your $12 King James Version. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now certainly, this isn't in your notes, certainly we, we live under the perfect law of liberty, James 1, 25, and so we, we really have a special emphasis on the New Testament because that's the dispensation we live under, and yet the Old Testament's important because the Old Testament was continuously pointing to the New Testament. And so we have to have an understanding for both of those. And here's the sad part, the majority of people around us, and many even within the churches of Christ, do not have any type of a set study time. They have no, no set type of or pattern of study. It's really just whenever they feel like it, once in a while. Sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's really only when they're in a bad situation, they want something from God and they feel the need to go and pray for something or to, or to spend some time in the Bible because they think that that will maybe help God give them what it is they want. And many of us have maybe even fallen into that category. It's not really personal study time. And we can't grow in the Bible or, or in our faith when we're not increasing our knowledge. And again, there is no book out there other than, the King, than, our, than our accurately translated Bible. I use a King James. You might use an MLV. You may use an ASV. There's a number of versions. But there's no other book out there that's going to help you if you're not at least studying the book. Now, the other ones, again, as I mentioned, may be a great aid. Uh, but it's certainly not necessary. How about an attitude of investigation and verification? Many of you probably, as I say that, should immediately be thinking about a specific group within the Bible. I see heads already shaking. Are you thinking about the Bereans? That's who comes to my mind when I start thinking about those who are willing to go and to investigate. Going over to Acts 17, and I want you to notice this. They didn't have to be rich to uh, go back and investigate. All they needed to do was go back to their Old Testament scriptures, right? Acts 17, 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they, reached, they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. You know, I began to think a little bit about this. It is clear to me as we look at the Bereans, they didn't at this point have everything figured out, did they? And they knew that they didn't. They went back and they began to go back and investigate and to verify with the Scriptures 
there were some people in the Bible that didn't have this type of an attitude. Going over to John 9.34. John 9.34. And tell me if you've ever had this attitude given to you as you were trying to teach somebody. John 9.34. This is actually them responding to Jesus. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Here they have the teacher of teachers who is teaching them truth. And you know what they're saying? You can't teach us. We know it all. And by the way, you're a sinner. And they're alluding back to the fact he was born in sin. Many of them thought that Mary had become pregnant out of wedlock. And there's, an, there's a whole lot we could talk about this. But the point was simply this. They thought they had it all figured out. And they had the teacher of teachers right in front of them hearing truth, and they wouldn't listen to it. How many of you guys have ever had someone, as you tried to teach them, bring either back up your history or, or begin to say, you know, I don't think you're even telling me the truth, and, and they don't want to hear it. You know, I was told oftentimes that many people who were not Christians in their younger life could never go back and work within the towns that they grew up in. I believe that would be true for me. I don't believe that many people who knew me prior to being a Christian would want to hear the things that I have to say. They would probably accuse me of being in sin just as they did here. But here they have the teachers of teachers and, and they wouldn't listen. Now the Bereans, they were willing to go back and investigate. Have you ever wondered why it was that the Bereans were actually told that they were more noble than the Thessalonians? Well, first of all, what we already see in the context, it's because they were willing to go back and investigate the scriptures. Uh, but you might be asking, what exactly made them different? And here's what comes to mind as I think about this. I want you to remember the Thessalonians, they were actually told to not despise the first century miraculous gift of prophecy, but instead to go back and investigate what it was that was spoken. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Quench not the Spirit. Now, in context, we're going to notice a miraculous gift of the Spirit uh, in which they were, some of them, quenching. It says, despise not prophesyings. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain all appearance, from all appearance of evil. Here's the thing. They needed to go back and actually do what it was that the Bereans were doing. They needed to listen. They needed to consider what it was the speaker was saying. And then they needed to go back and verify if what it was that was bring, being prophesied was actually in alignment with the truth. They needed to go back and, and do some investigation. Guys, have you ever noticed that prejudice regarding religious doctrine and people exist solely because oftentimes people are too mentally lazy to actually go back and look book, chapter, and verse? How many of you guys have ever had a conversation with someone where you say, baptism is required in the Bible, and they say, I don't really think it is. I don't think it is. And you say, well, the Bible teaches that it is, and you begin to give them verses, and they say, you know, I really, I really just I don't think that it is. And here's the thing, guys. It is okay to disagree with somebody. It's one thing to call something truth and error, but it is another totally different thing to be able to explain to somebody why it is truth and error based on book, chapter, and verse. The lazy person, they say, well, I agree or I don't agree, and they're not like the Bereans. They won't go back and investigate why it is they believe what they believe. As I began to think a little bit about this, and again, the example I gave, I mean, if a man were to tell me that baptism is not required as a part of salvation, I know for a fact he's, he's certainly prejudiced, but as I mentioned earlier, it could be a number of things. It could be ignorance. It could be laziness. It could be a combination 
of both of those. And I know that because as I look through my scriptures and investigate, like the Bereans, I see time and time again where it is commanded. Now again, when things like that are to happen with us in our daily conversations, we need to go back and we need to correct those individuals. Let me read you a passage and then I'm going to put it back into context because I don't want to be accused of using it out of context. Titus 1.9, Holding fast the faithful words as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. Now in context, this is referring to elders. However, we can look at a number of passages talking about the individual Christian who is responsible, one, to teach truth, and two, to correct our brethren our brothers or sisters in Christ when they are in error. And here's the thing, guys. A lot of congregations won't do it. A lot of congregations, they don't want to, they don't want to get involved when things become, when they become uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about difficult topics. They, they want to steer away from that. But congregations need to encourage open investigation like the Brians, open discussion on even the most uncomfortable and hard topics that there are. And I'm not suggesting you can do it in one Bible study. It may take weeks and weeks. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of congregations who were battling over what they thought was maybe a doctrinal issue? And, and let's be honest, some congregations just want to sweep it under the rug. But other congregations, if they've got people that truly want to do right and they say, I really don't know, they go back and they begin to investigate. They begin to study and they begin to try to figure out what it is, is what's correct, what's not correct. And if congregations would do this, it would purify the church. It would, pure us, it would purify us individually. Congregations in error would be corrected. If we do it in our personal life for those that go to other religious bodies, maybe they individually could be led to the truth and brought out of false religious groups into the, 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 the body that just uses the Bible. And like the Brians, they go back and they investigate it. Certainly this would keep members from accepting or rejecting erroneous Bible doctrines or beliefs or even personal activities based solely on their thoughts of what is acceptable or not acceptable. And guys, if we want to be pure personally and congregationally, we've, we've got to go back and verify what we believe. And this starts with Bible study. But again, if we won't go back and investigate our beliefs with the Scriptures, there isn't any other book I could even have in my personal library that's going to allow me to be pure and righteous. How about the desire to rightly divide the word? Let's go on over to 2 Timothy 2.15. A study to, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now it's interesting, in the ASV, this is actually rendered to handle aright, all, all right. If you go and look this up in the MLV, it literally is it's a very literal translation. It says, cutting straight. I like that interpretation or that, that uh, translation. That's actually probably one of the best I've seen. The idea is this, is you're cutting through the air by learning what it is that the Scriptures actually teach and require. And so when we begin to talk about this idea of dividing the word of truth, what it means is, is I'm willing to study to the point where I can cut through the religious air and know what truth actually is. You know, we were oftentimes told in school, if you just memorize your Bible, memorize your Bible, memorize your Bible, when somebody starts to teach error, you'll know what it is. You just know what it is because you'll be like, I, I haven't read that, or that's different than what I've read. You've got to be able to divide the Word. Now, this is a whole lot different. A lot of people think this is maybe just dividing the Old Testament teaching from the New Testament teaching. Uh, this involves a whole lot more than that. This involves actually using common sense rules 
for the study of our scriptures, just like we would when we study anything else or any other type of, of literature. It involves correct understanding and application of the Bible text. And you may say, well, what really are those, what really are those rules? Well, we're going to spend a few minutes on these. I'll give a couple of examples. We've, we've touched on this before. Let me say this before I really touch on these. Um, if you do spend a lot of time online reading, if you do read books and you, you begin to see people talking about, they call it CENI or C-E-N-I, anytime you see that, you, your ears need to perk up. One, because the guy is teaching direct truth. Or two, because it's going to be the complete opposite. Those are your two options. And let me talk about why there are people that want to get away from this. We're going to talk about how to understand your Bible on basic basic principles used for all literature. We do it in, even in our daily lives. And this is how the Bible has always been understood. And today you have a lot of people who are wanting to get away from this. So let's, basic, let's focus for just a few minutes on the basic fundamentals. How do we divide rightly the Scriptures? Let's start talking about commands for just a minute. Here's the first question for any time we see a command or for any activity we want to do. Do I have authority? First letter there is C. As, we, as I gave you the acronym CENI or C-E-N-I, you're going to see what that means. Commands. And I, I decided as I thought about this, let's use a command that, well, it's oftentimes overlooked. And I think it is one of the easiest to understand. Going over to Matthew 19.9, let's look at the command. This is often rejected. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Here's the question. And this is actually going to go back up to the beginning of the conversation that the Jews asked Jesus. Hey, can I divorce my spouse for just any cause? Well, the answer is no. And given within our text is only for fornication. The only thing authorized for you to put away your spouse and divorce them is for fornication. Now, this goes back to some earlier points. But the one that I really had in mind as I thought about this was this question. Do I have an honest and good heart? Do I want to do the will of God? Here's the question I would ask. Why would I want to break my marriage bond or my vow in the first place? Maybe it was for fornication. That's not what we're talking about. The question was, can I divorce my spouse for any cause? And then we begin to look at, at the understanding here. Second question is this, regarding my marriage, am I actually willing to abide by God's will as recorded in the written word? Now again, you go back, he gives the exclusion or the, the command, uh, the reason for which you can put away a spouse. Here's the question for anyone who wants to get divorced. Am I willing to abide by the very clear teaching on divorce? There are a lot of other commands we could look at, but that's a simple one, right? Don't lie. Do you lie? Don't steal. Do you steal? And the list would go on and on. How about examples? Do we have binding examples to support either a command or personal desire? I have to throw that in there because a lot of times you'll ask people, why do you do that? And they say, well, because I want to do it, right? Do you have a binding example to support the command or to support the time, the place, or the method in carrying out the command or, again, one's personal desire? Let's look at uh, the example. Now, we all know the command to worship. Right? We, if you asked anyone who claimed to be a Christian and you say, are you commanded to worship? They'd say, yeah, of course I am. 
Let's go on over to John 4, 24, because here's the question. What are the requirements for worship? And again, guys, if these seem like repeats, we've covered this in detail before, but we need to break it down in context as we begin to talk about our personal library. Because if I don't understand these basics here, it doesn't matter how many books I have in my personal library. John 4, 24, as we look at the requirements for worship, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. All right, so we have the command to worship, and then we also have the command of how to worship Him. It's got to be in spirit and in truth. And some may be saying, well, what exactly is truth? And we go on over to John 17, 17, which says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So if I have to worship, which I'm commanded to, and it's got to be in truth, then i got to worship according to His word. You see how we put the two passages together? So again, we are commanded to do it. But here's the question. Does the Bible have a binding example of when worship is to take place, how it's to be done? And we're not going to spend a whole lesson on worship. We're not. But that's a logical question. Do we have biblical example for how and when? Going over to Acts 20, verse 7. This is a great one to look at as we look for the timing of when worship should take place. Let's ask ourselves, when did the early Christians... Uh, worship, and in this passage, this is taking place under apostolic oversight. And upon the first day of the week, that is the Lord's Day, that's Sunday. It was the same then as it is now. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, now some try to misuse this and say, well, they're just having dinner here. No, that's not what's going on. This is worship taking place, and I'll show you how, and you see it in the context. Paul preached unto them. Let me pause. How many of you guys ever had someone come to your house and preach while you're eating dinner? You ever had that happen? It could happen at my house, but I'd say for the most part, it doesn't really happen. Right? This is a worship context. I don't care what people tell you. When the disciples came together to break bread, the Lord's Supper, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. What do I learn there? Well, the church can meet from Sunday all the way through Saturday, and even Sunday for things other than worship. They could get together for Bible study. They could get together for fellowship. Uh, they could get together for a number of reasons. But I learned here that worship was only authorized and only took place on the first day of the week. That's totally different than when I was raised as a Catholic and we worshipped on Saturday. You know the only thing good about Catholic worship on Saturday? It meant I got to sleep on Sunday, right? Well, you need to go back and ask yourself, do I have binding examples that give, uh, give the timing or the method of how these commands are to take place. Next, necessary inference. We've covered this one before. Does the binding command or example lead to necessary inference? Going over to Mark 16, 16. And again, this is the most logical way. I've heard people say there's no need for necessary inference. You don't need it in your Bible. Yes, you do. Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. You know what I infer here? I infer that if I fall in alignment with the requirements that Jesus set forth and His inspired writers, I will be among the saved, right? But I also learn that if I, in Mark 16, 16, believe not is disobey, that if I do not obey, I will be among the damned. Let me prove to you even more that inference is necessary. How many of you guys have your name in the Bible that says you're, you personally are going to be saved? You won't find that anywhere. But what you will find is, is that those who abide by the Word of God and obey it and carry out the will of God, those are the ones who are faithful, who are among the saved. That's what inference allows for me to have an understanding of. Another example would be unity in the faith. Let's, let's infer something from Galatians 1, 6, 
through 7. Galatians 1, 6 through 7. Notice what Paul tells the church there in Galatia. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. If teaching another gospel is a perversion of the gospel of Christ, and I can infer from this passage that there's actually only one gospel of Christ. There's only one faith, right? And that inference would be supported by a number of other passages. Let me just give you a couple. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And this is really for anybody who might be watching this online, who goes to a a religious group uh, other than the churches of Christ, or believes that all religious groups are accepted with God, or for those even within the churches of Christ who, who call those in denominational groups and community churches our brothers and sisters in Christ. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body. Guys, jot down Matthew 16, 18 through 20. Jesus teaches the same thing. There's just going to be the one church. There's one body and one spirit. That's one unit of revelation. Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. We just touched on that. One baptism. Again, you got people today teaching baptism of fire, some teaching baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's one baptism at the time this was wrote, written, and that was immersion in water. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now go on over to Jude 1.3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now I can go back and look at a number of other passages, but as I read Galatians 1, 6 through 7, and I see that people were perverting the gospel of Christ, I infer from that, and I see supported by other scriptures, that there's just one faith. That's necessary inference. And since there's only one faith, man is determined on his faithfulness to that one faith. Going over to 1 John 2, verses 3 through 5. You guys got a short lesson today. And hereby we do know that we know Him. How? If we keep His commandments. Let me pause for a minute. How many of you guys know someone that says they know Christ, but they don't keep His commandments? They've never probably even obeyed the gospel, many of them. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth His word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. Now we could spend a lot more time on the proper rules of understanding our scriptures, Without a proper acknowledgement of the rules, which give me a proper understanding of the Scriptures, it doesn't matter how many books I read other than my Bible, or even the Bible, if I don't know how to understand what it is that I'm actually reading. Now, it's logical, guys, and we've said this before. Without a proper understanding for the rules of math, uh, we're going to have a hard time obtaining the correct answer when we work math problems. And the same thing is true with the Bible, regardless of the number of books that you possess or read in your personal library. You want to understand the Bible better? You want to obey the Bible? It begins with understanding these first principles. And again, guys, study aids are helpful, but the only book needed is the book, an accurate translation of the book. And as I draw this to a close, let me say this. You can be a Bible scholar with nothing more than a $12 accurate translation. The other books are, they're occasionally needful for me. I find the longer I've been a Christian, the less I decide to rely on those things. I'd rather go back and try to find it for myself. 
As I draw this to a close, my concern would be for anybody who is watching this online or is here and is not a Christian. It's not a complicated process. It is one that we would love to sit down with you and study in great detail. It's not complicated. The way that they were saved in the New Testament scriptures is the same way that people are saved today. Somebody was teaching them the Word of God. That's how faith comes, Romans 10, 17. They were hearing the Word and they believed it, Hebrews 11, 6 and John 8, 24. They understood about sin and the consequence of sin and they were willing to repent of their sin, Luke 13, 3 and 5, Acts 17, 30. They were willing to confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, same as we find by the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And then they were immersed in water for the remission of sins, Mark 16, 15 and 16. Acts 2.38, Romans 6, uh, verses 3 and 4, and a number of other passages. When they did that, they were added to the church by the Lord Himself, Acts 2, verse 47, and then they were required to be faithful. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, Revelation 2.10, and a number of other passages. I just rattled those off for anybody who's watching it. If you've never heard that, hit the pause button on YouTube, go back and write them all down. Look at them, and then I'll tell you what, if you've never heard it, give us a call. We will talk to you personally. We'll set you up with a congregation in your area so you can be taught the gospel. If you are here and you're a Christian, ask yourself, go back and consider your personal library. And again, when I say that, I'm not talking about the number of books in your house. I'm talking about your personal library. Where is it that you are at when you begin to study the Word of God? There's a way that we can help you as we draw this to a close. You can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.